Today on Podcast by the Bay, organizer, big thinker, visionary, activist, and problem solver, the Peninsula's own Lenny Mendonca. One of the necessary political reforms across the country at every level from local elections to county elections to statewide elections is altering the primary process. Um, I think citizen-based redistricting and open primaries are a good step in that process. I think properly designed uh, ranked choice voting or some combination of those are really good. Discussing big ideas and vision for California and also solutions for some of the issues that are affecting us all. Part of the innovation has to come from just creating the incentives for municipalities to approve that kind of housing that's denser, higher, and closer to transit. There actually is demand for that housing. Um, if you look around where the BART stations are, and you're going to see this really substantially in San Jose when the BART stations open there, people like to live close to transit. Um, and the kind of urban lifestyle, particularly in a place as attractive as the Bay Area, is a very uh, appealing one. So part of this is just creating the opportunity, the financial incentives, both for the municipalities and for um, the construction, to get those things built faster. All coming up on today's episode of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Podcast by the Bay is brought to you by Highway Soul Productions. Check us out at HighwaySoul.com and in conjunction with Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.Liberty-RealtyInvestments.com Remember to subscribe and download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. You can contact Podcast by the Bay by their email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. And now, another Podcast by the Bay. Okay, welcome to Podcast by the Bay. This is Andre. And this is Patrick. And welcome to another rendition of Podcast by the Bay. We thank you for being with us, and we thank you for downloading this episode. And in fact, this is our big 5-0. This is our 50th episode here at Podcast by the Bay. And we are excited to present this. And today we actually have a very special guest, Lenny Mendonca. And we're going to get to talk about Lenny here in a couple minutes. But I do want to mention that the next show, we're going to kind of do a reflection about the last 50 episodes with a lot of special commentary and things like that. So we're excited to present that. So I just want to say thanks to all the listeners out there and for everybody for checking in, for downloading the episodes, for spreading the word, and for being a part here at Podcast by the Bay. Andre, Andre, I just can't believe it. I know when we started this uh, seven months ago, we were thinking we would be lucky if we had 10, 15 shows. We have so much energy into this, and the people are so passionate out there that we've interviewed, Andre, that it's encouraging to find out that the new message that we're trying to get out, that we're trying to have forms of communication, not taking a right, not taking a left, not taking the middle, but bringing everybody to the table and trying to come with solutions. Andre, my hat's off to you. And, you know, I'm, I'm honored that I had the opportunity to interview Lenny Mendoza because this was all Andre's idea. Andre was passionate about this guy. He has a undergraduate in economics from Harvard University. He has a uh, business management degree from Stanford University. And Andre, tell me why you wanted me to interview this guy. Because you were just as, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about the interview right now because I wanted you to share with the audience why, what you thought of Lenny and why did you think we needed to get Lenny out there to our audience. Well, thank you, Patrick. I think that one of the things we're doing here at Podcast by the Bay is we're really trying to change the world through communication. And that's really bringing people together uh, to really talk about the ideas, talk about the issues, and really talk about ideas on ways to solve the problems, right? 
And so that's why we reach out to the, the mayors, right? We, we, we reach out to the local officials, right? We reach out to the all the 14, 15 different mayors that we've interviewed. We re- reach out to the Kevin Mullins. But then we also reach out to people running for office with, with new ideas, right? So we reach out to the Jeff Bleiches, the Eleni Kulinakis's the you know the dave jones um you know so and then we 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 kind of mix in different kind of some of our think takes discussions right so we we also reach out to people that are you know involved right so uh, other councilmen um and people who are really talking about these issues so like matt regan from the bay area council armanda sanchez so we kind of bring in people and so lenny represents some of the people who are really developing some of the policy behind what's happening in the state, you know, at, at, at these levels where, you know, this is where things are happening, right? So when we spoke to Carl Guardino, who's someone who's actually sponsoring Regional Measure 3, and, uh, you know, really got some insight. And this is this is coming from the source. So what we're doing, you know, what we wanted to do when we interviewed Lenny is we recognize that Lenny's kind of a renaissance man. Uh, not only is the, the he's the owner of the Half Moon Bay Brewing Company, which I actually have a cool story about, which I'll kind of tell you guys about. Lenny writes a number of articles. Um, you know, he's been a part of all kind of great institutes and, and think tanks uh, such as McKinsey, the Bay Area Council, Commonwealth Club, um, and he and he's currently the co-chair of the California Forward. And so, California Forward. Uh, organization. It's a catalyst for a better California, and that's C-A-F-W-D dot org. And they're actually going to sponsor the 2018 California Economic Summit coming up in uh, Santa Rosa, and that's November 15th and 16th. And you can go to their website, and that's C-A-F-W-D dot org, and you can find out information. You can even register right there. Um, so he's the co-chair of this organization that really helps, uh, you know, he wants to be a part of the change, right? Lenny's really helped facilitating, bringing organizations, bringing people together to really talk about these issues and come up with solutions. And that's kind of what we're doing here at Podcast by the Bay. And so we want to really talk to these people that are doing this and actually are the source. And Lenny is a source. And when you talk to him, when you listen to him, and when you hear his interview, you're going to agree that he is, he, you know, it's, 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 it's the knowledge you're hearing. You're hearing directly from a source who really has studied these issues. He really understands um, what's happening with the issues and, and really how to approach with solutions. And um, the other one is Lenny's also part of the Fuse Corps. And this is an organization that enlists entrepreneurial professionals to tackle the nation's most pressing problems through a one-year fellowship with a visionary governor, mayor, or social entrepreneur. So Lenny's part of this, and he's and he's really being the change in our community, and we want to talk to people like this. We want to talk to people who are out there, who are really bringing people together, talking solutions. And you know, Lenny actually hosts the Brews and Views, and this is a, a, a segment that he has at the Half and Bay Brewing Company to really bring forth and talk about these issues at his own restaurant there on the Half and Bay Brewing Company. So one quick uh, story I have about the Half and Bay Brewing Company uh, before we get started into the interview is that um, uh, back about maybe 2002, 2003, I was playing with a band, Susan James and Throw Train, and some of our first gigs, we had like I think like about three gigs at the Half and Bay Brewing Company. And I kind of remember, I think reaching out to Lenny back then. We were trying to book a gig or something, and we were able to get in. And I thought it just was so cool. You know, it was one of our first gigs, and you know, it was a great venue, great place, great people. And so definitely go down there and check it out. But yeah, so um, it's just interesting that uh, you know, uh, you know, he still has the place and. It's still rocking and rolling, so you can always go down there on a Saturday and Sunday and see some great live music and things like that. So, anyways, with that, we're going to go ahead and get to the Lenny interview. Was there anything else you wanted to add, Patrick? Yeah, I wanted to, again, thank Andre for reaching out, for pushing to get this, uh, the Lenny Mendoza. I, I want to say it was an op- a great opportunity. Uh, it was a very um, enjoyable interview. Um, very, I, I interviewed him at his restaurant um, in the back room, and it was it was a great opportunity. Uh, Lenny's a very comfortable person talking to. Uh, we talked about first of all how he raised his family in Half Moon Bay, his two daughters, and he has his wife with him too. Um, as as Andre mentioned, <clears throat> he was the director of the McKinsey and Company from 1983 to present. Uh, we we talked about politics in Half Moon Bay. We talked about housing. We talked about transportation. 
We talked about a lot of the issues um, uh, facing the peninsula, not just uh, the local stuff, but we also talked about the state stuff. We didn't really touch too much on the the government, the uh, federal government and that type of stuff, but everything is kind of intertwined. Um, he is a forward thinker. He's got kind of a, a Federalist idea, and I want you to go on to Lenny's website and take a look at some of the Federalist papers. Uh, he's a progressive thinker, like Andre mentioned. Uh, he was very open. I spent about almost 50 minutes speaking with him. Um, as you know, he's also owner of the uh, Mavericks Beer Company from 2000 to present, uh, owner and director of brewing company. And Andre, you told me that he was also affiliated with one of the local papers uh, out there in Half Moon Bay. Is that right? Correct. So he actually is a new owner of the Half Moon Bay Review. He's one of the, 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 the I guess, investors that actually purchased the paper. So he is part of the Half Moon Bay Review um, as, as that's one of his new ventures. Well, you know, one of the other things that I found out, and I'm trying to get him, He's also a chair on the uh, Foundation for Children Now, and that's uh, Ted Lempert. I know I've reached out to Ted, and probably now once Ted has an opportunity to listen to the interview uh, with Lenny, that he'd be encouraged to go in there. So he's also co-chair of California Forward. He's also a co-founder and chair of Fuse Corps, uh, board member of the Council on Foreign Relations, like Andre mentioned, uh, Public Policy Institute of California. This man's involved, but he's down to earth. He's not only well-educated, he's well-versed in the community. Um, and I've got to thank him for the interview. And I know, Andre, he reached out to us, uh, and he was very excited to have that opportunity to interview with us. Sounds good, Patrick. So with that, I think we're going to go ahead and get to the Lenny Mendonca interview. And if you have any questions, have any feedback, please reach out to us at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at podcastbythebay is our handle. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash podcast by the bay. So with that, we're going to go ahead and get to the Lenny interview and signing off. This is Andre. And this is Patrick. And we'll catch you on the next time a podcast by the bay. Stay tuned. Welcome to podcast by the bay. We're in Half Moon Bay today and uh, we have the honor of interviewing the owner of the Half Moon Bay Brewery and that's Lenny Mendoza. But Lenny is also uh, quite known for being an activist in the community. He's got an undergraduate degree from Harvard in economics. Uh, He also holds a master's degree from Stanford University in public management. I want to welcome you to Podcast by the Bay. To some of my listeners out there, they might not know your background. So why don't you give them a little background about yourself? I know you live here in Half Moon Bay. You've got two daughters. And uh, give give us your feel of Half Moon Bay and and, uh, what what you think of Half Moon Bay. Sure. So... uh my wife, Christine, and I have lived in Half Moon Bay for almost 30 years now. We moved here when my oldest daughter was a baby, in part because we wanted to be able to have her and eventually her sister walk to the public schools, which they did uh, for elementary school, and then went through junior high and high school here. And we totally love it. It's a Half Moon Bay and the coast in general is its own little uh, you know, isolated community in the sense of uh, coastal on the beach, rural, um, but it's closely connected to the entire Bay Area. Uh, a lot of connectivity to San Francisco, to Silicon Valley. We're close to the airport. Uh, it's a, it's a lovely place, a very diverse place, and um, we could not be happier being here. Well, you know, I had a fortunate opportunity to interview uh, Deborah Penrose, which is your mayor in Half Moon Bay, and. Um, we at podcast by the bay. We've interviewed about sixteen mayors on the peninsula. They all give us a little bit different background. Um, I think one of Deborah Penrose's uh, concerns is probably the concerns of all the people that, that are in Half Moon Bay or anybody on the coast, and that's primarily housing for the workforce people. What's what's your opinion? I know that um, there's not a lot of property out here that you can expand upon. What, do you have any solutions for the workforce housing that you have? Uh, in uh, Half Moon Bay and on the coast? Well, I I think the cost and accessibility of housing at all levels, particularly those in uh, working families and those who are entering the housing market, is a huge problem. It's obviously not uh, isolated to the coast. The issue with the housing challenge is really connected to the fact that there's been enormous job creation in 
the entire Bay Area and most of California, and our housing production's not kept pace. And so you know, it's simple supply and demand. When we have many more jobs, many more people moving in, having families, and we're not building housing, that's what happens. The cost of housing goes up. Um, as it relates to the coast, the coast has actually done a pretty good job in that jobs housing balance. We actually have people who uh, the job growth in the um, coast has, or the population growth has come from people who live here but commute to Silicon Valley, the airport, uh, and buildings and biotech around the airport and San Francisco. So um, we've actually done a pretty good job of housing production, but it's just the job creation is so substantial. So uh, there's no silver bullet. I do think building more homes in places that are close and dense to housing, to uh, transit hubs is important. Um, I think there are some really interesting um, innovations in what are called accessory dwelling units that help, which is basically adding a unit to a house that's already there, you know, colloquially called granny flats, um, and making those legal and encouraging people to who have who are house rich but cash poor to be able to provide some other living space for people and get some income out of it. I think those are part of the answer. Um, it's also connected to, to transportation, so you have to be able to have jobs and people located closely. So um, it's it's a hard problem. Well, you're pretty innovative, and I want to kind of uh, dovetail. I'm really excited about what we've talked about, the buzzwords in the state of building near quarter transportation. Right. Uh, and, uh, and we give federal and state tax credit for that. The only unfortunate thing is, is that even though we do build housing, there is no study that indicates that people that live near the corridor transportation actually take transportation. And then when I go to another average, we're still building parking spaces, two-car garages. So any innovative idea on how we can be – I know the Bay Meadows project in the – Right, San Mateo. De developed a phase, and the phase said that if you move in here, you have to do ride share or you have to share a car or – or do public transportation. Do you think we can be a little more innovative on that idea? Or You know, I, I think part of the innovation has to come from just creating the incentives for municipalities to approve that kind of housing that's denser, higher, and closer to transit. There actually is demand for that housing. Um, if you look around where the BART stations are, and you're going to see this really substantially in San Jose when the BART stations open there, people like to live close to transit. Um, and the kind of urban lifestyle, particularly in a place as attractive as the Bay Area, is a very uh, appealing one. So part of this is just creating the opportunity, the financial incentives, both for the municipalities and for um, the construction, to get those things built faster. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I heard that is Caltrans also had discovered they have some 30 acres that they're using for cars. And I think your idea sounds forthcoming if they can make it attractive uh, and use it. Have you been following that yeah, at all? No, I think this is, um, if you want to have an optimistic view about the intermediate to slightly longer term view about housing, um, if you really think that there, and I do, that there will be more autonomous vehicles and even before that ride sharing and opportunities where people don't have to get in their own private car and park there's an enormous amount of land owned by public agencies from caltrans to bart to school districts to cities and counties that are now use you know very poor use of the land for parking garages and that all creates opportunities for uh, new kinds of housing development and also will take cars off the street. Well, you know, I appreciate you bringing that up because probably around 20 years ago when we had that first recession, I remember going in front of the Board of Supervisors and they were thinking of selling certain assets because the economy was bad. But one of the questions that I always brought forth, and you kind of answered it, we in the state and the county and the city and some of the unincorporated areas, we have land that's owned by the cities and counties and states, but we seem to have not been able to unleash that, so to speak, or use it for the benefit which could connect to public transportation. I, Are, have, I, you, have you been hearing any yeah, words no, back there? there, there is. I mean, it was understandable in the middle of recession when school districts and cities, counties were trying to figure out how to not cut services that they looked at everything and said, can we dispose of excess land? I mean, it turns out in, for schools, at least, which I'm closer to some of the work that's been done there, you can't sell property and use the money for operating funds unless it's a 
state-granted emergency. So San Bruno did that. In general, what they can do, though, is take that vacant land and use it for teacher housing or use it for uh, affordable housing more generally and get the income off of it. And so having a thoughtful view from public agencies about uh, a 10-year view about what land do you really need for the purposes, and, and especially if we're moving to a different transit mode, and can you use that land in a way that creates housing for your workers? I think that's a really interesting, and there'll be more opportunity. So as an example, there's an a innovative startup company in, um, in the Bay Area called Landed. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they provide down payment assistance for homeowners. And the, it's, uh, part of the down payment comes from an investment of people who share in some of the gain of the property when it's sold. And, and uh, school districts and um, philanthropists who are interested in trying to promote that, including Chan Zuckerberg, have invested in that to enable um, an average teacher on a two-income salary can afford the mortgage payment. They can't afford the down payment. But if you made it easier for people to get into homes, that would help. And so mm -hmm. if you have an opportunity to, to new ways to structure how you can purchase a home or, or afford it and then more construction, I think we can make a dent on these things. Well, you know, I know with talking um, with most of the city uh, mayors, most of the cities now on their funding all give it to heart, which is similar to the program that you're just talking about. Uh, and basically they structure it. But I want to go back to two buzzwords that seem to be intertwined. Now we're talking because of the economy, workforce housing, affordable housing. What we're doing, it appears on the peninsula from an economic standpoint, is we're building high-end apartments. We're not necessarily building housing for teachers or policemen or bankers and stuff like that. Um, do you, do, you, do you think, I know we're in Foster City, we have a project which is called the Saris Regis, which was originally zoned commercial and retail. Now the developers figured that that doesn't make sense, let's make it workforce housing, let's partnership with the city, the city will get the units, let's say there's 24 units and we're going to get seven or eight of those units and they're going to be below market rent or rent for, right. for um, first time first-time responders or teachers. How do we tackle that? That's a, that's a tough question. No, I, well, first of all, I think the answer to housing is kind of an all-of-the-above strategy. We, I would not slow down the production of market-rate housing. We need that, too. But we also need to find ways to help build housing, uh, both rental and uh, for sale, that is affordable. And that includes making land available, but it also because we have to lower the cost of building. If you have a attempting to sell a, a affordable house that costs seven hundred thousand dollars to build that's not an affordable house so we have to find a way to to lower the cost of construction well I think we just came up with an idea um, together we were talking about that land that's owned by the city and the county and the state because that could benefit the city and the county and the state with revenue because when we look at the workforce housing, um, and we're going to use the capital funds in Foster City, that's going to bring a return on their, yeah. their dollar, which makes business sense. Yeah, so, it does. And, yeah. you know, whether it's uh, underutilized public land, whether it's parking lots that will no longer be needed, or whether, in fact, we probably in the Bay Area, and I haven't seen the analysis done, but I'd be shocked if it's not true, that we have excess uh, mall space. Oh, I think you're right. I think so, you're right. I think that's going to even happen so. So I... I I can't mention the shopping center. I'm in real estate for 38 years. I will just tell you off the record, and we can imagine where it is. I made an offer, a substantial offer, in the hundreds of millions on some property. It's on the peninsula for that complete idea. That's but it didn't work. Uh, maybe I'll come back to the drawing board. I don't know if the investor will come back because... Retail is going by the wayside, and the retail is mixing with entertainment and housing mm -hmm. with stuff. So let's go back to the real fly in the ointment that seems to be more of a problem than just the housing, and that's transportation. Um, if we did surveys, it, it, transportation seems to be a bigger issue. And I want to interject one of the podcasts that we had. We had an honor to interview a gentleman named Dave Tanner. I don't know if you're familiar with Dave Tanner. So. Dave Tanner has been on the uh, 
town council in Woodside for 18 years. Okay. He's a builder, a very successful man. He had an idea, and his idea, as we know, the Tamfran Shopping Center probably will be level pretty soon. Okay, the Aussie people that bought it want to develop it out. He has a connection or an idea, which is a monorail system, which would connect 380. Um, and I encourage you to go on our on our highwaysoul.com. We've got a temporary video uh, from him. He's willing to improve it. And the idea is the he's trying to get the right-of-way or easements, and he's going to need some funding. His idea is to take everybody, the, the one-third of those people in the Bay Area that, that go to your Tracy or your Stockton or Melpitas or wherever they may go, if this system would put in place, they every 20 minutes it would land in a city. So all of a sudden we would be getting that maybe that one-third of the traffic out there. So kind of an innovative idea. He was going to bring it to the Bay Area, um, Bay Area uh, Council for uh, uh, Cities, and, and I think he's got a slow approach. But I would encourage you to look at it. Because okay. I know um, looking at your background, you're kind of a futuristic guy. You're looking outside of the box for solutions. No, listen, um, I, I think transportation... And housing are interconnected, obviously, because people live and work in different places, and particularly in this interconnected, there's not one commute pattern. People used to be one direction was mm -hmm. commute hour. That's no longer true. People, it feels more like Los Angeles. Or everybody's 45 minutes away from everything from where they live and work. So we have to encourage housing that's closer to, to where people work. But we also have to make a, a much more... Uh, efficient and innovative use of the transportation infrastructure that's out there or new ways to do it. Well, I want to kind of put you on the spot on this transportation thing because I see it differently after interviewing the 16, 17 mayors. I had a wonderful opportunity to interview Carl Gardino uh -huh. uh, with Regional Measure 3, and that's passed, and I think that's exciting. Yep. One of the things that I noticed we don't have on the peninsula, the only thing we're really bragging about is that we're now putting money aside to help improve transportation is that we claim about the Clipper card, but I don't want to get hung up on bureaucracy, but we don't have a regional transit district. No, no I think okay? that's absolutely right. Um, and I see that, I was reading the paper today, Sam Tram is going to expand more of their commuter buses. Um, but also, as you know, the ridership for Caltrans is down. I interviewed Seamus Murphy, the communication director for Caltrans, and w what I heard I wasn't that excited about uh, because the the uh, Sam Trams he was telling is really just ridership for the poor and the elderly and the disabled. So they haven't somewhat hooked on to the Google bus idea, the Facebook idea, and stuff like that. How how would you, Lenny, approach that to to get do do we need a transit district or is that more bureaucracy? No, I don't think it's more bureaucracy. That there there already is a large number of management in those different infrastructures, so different transit agencies. And it is a problem of, of lack of connectivity and coordination. You know, the the fact that we're, we, San Mateo County, um, and didn't approve BART in the first place and are now having to repurpose it is, that shouldn't have never happened. Um, and we should have continued to find ways to upkeep both maintenance and ongoing development of our infrastructure so we're not paying catch-up all the time. And just to be a, a specific example, uh, the, op, the initiative to repeal the, tax, the gas tax is a terrible idea. Um, we absolutely need to fund our infrastructure, and using it for user fees in effect through gas taxes is a very good way to do it smart economically, and we need to continue to invest in uh, ensuring that our capacity is there, and then we need to find new ways to, to move people around. I mean, there, there are... Um, the opportunity to use more smart lanes where people are um, incented to to, bund to have more ridership. The opportunity for the simple things like metered lights on entering into the freeways, let alone opportunities for down the road more efficient spacing of the distance between cars if you're, you know, it's not implausible in a few years that the hot lanes on Highway 101 could be autonomous vehicles only and they're packed like three inches apart through that entire time period. That would take an enormous uh, burden of the congestion off. Um, so I think there's a lot of a lot of need. And, you know, it's one of those things that if there's resources there, we've got the most innovative economy in the world that should be at paying its attention to some of this. I mean, 
Google and Facebook are paying attention to it because they're Absolutely. getting their own buses. Yeah. Well, you know, one unique thing with podcasts by the Bay, we also had an opportunity to interview Mayor Gina Pappen. And obviously she's in Millbrae. And uh, she got a, a little called on the carpet because she didn't want to vote for that uh, housing that was right near the corridor transportation. And her main objection was is that there was no plan for the transportation. It wasn't the objection to it. But one of her major problems was is we have a hub that goes into the airport. And I was surprised that she told me it only went in a few times. So now they're in a negotiations with BART, which is a real pivotal hub. We need to get those people in and at the airport. So I'm going back with your idea, Lenny. We need some kind of regionalization and planning uh, that coordinates all the transportation. Now, is it just because they're all fighting for the same federal and state tax dollar? Um, Because isn't it about ridership? Yeah, well... No, it's about history. I mean, it's hard to, the the number of times when you've actually had consolidating public entities short of a crisis or a massive fiscal incentive from the federal government is is almost non-existent. So it, it's really hard. Now, having said that, you had ABAG in a functional integration with MTC, which is a very good thing. So we're integrating housing and transportation planning. Um, we have the regional measure to fund transportation that has financial incentives to collaborate. Um, you know, we almost had, uh, the planning was done, but after the earthquake in 89, we had an emergency act to do a water transit system. That's another huge opportunity that's untapped is instead of using the bay as a barrier, why don't we use it as a transit corridor? Before the bridges were here in the early part of the 20th century, that's how people got around. Well, I interviewed the mayor in South San Francisco and Brisbane, and they love that ferry system. Now, you bring up a good point because now, even in Foster City and some of the things, we don't need to have a ferry. We can have a hovercraft. We don't have to dredge out there, so to speak, to move these people. Yeah, and um, especially when you go farther south, it's not deep enough anyway. So there are opportunities for things that are not deep in the mm-hmm. water could move people all over the place. I mean, if you go to Hong Kong or Sydney, mm-hmm. it's just... They're fantastic water transit systems, and you know people who do it today love it. And we're in a place where the weather's nice year-round. It's a very comfortable way to ride, a lot more comfortable than sitting in traffic on the Bay Bridge or the Dumbarton Bridge. Okay, let's go into a little bit of politics for a little bit on the coast here. Um, and let's talk about the Harbor Commission. Um, and let's talk about... Uh, the functionality of it, the non-functionality of it, uh, should it go by the wayside? Um, what's your opinion? So the probably the single most valuable infrastructure asset on the coast is the Harbor District. I mean, we're looking at the harbor where we're sitting right now. The Harbor District also includes South San Francisco. Those have absolutely nothing in common. And this infrastructure is managed as a sideline from people and has been for a very long time extraordinarily ineffectively managed. Um, you know, you can argue about its, its particular individual's responsibility who are misbehaving in the board and things, and I think that's part of the problem, but I believe it's a governance problem. It's not designed for success. And I am uh, I have been on record supporting what the Half Moon Bay review editorialized a while ago was that we should dissolve it, turn it over to the county, um, let them clean it up, and then create a governance structure that is appropriate, which probably means separating South San Francisco from the coastal part of the Harbor Commission and creating the governance structure so that you have people elected in a way that have the, the capability, the time, and the responsibility to manage it effectively. It's not, it is horribly managed and has been for a very long time. Yeah, I, I know it seemed that the Board of Supervisors uh, was seeming to go that direction and then kind of backed off that direction. I guess it's it's still political football, and they're, they're not, not sure whether to punt or pass. Well, you know, I, I think it, it's going to be a matter of public will to say this is the right answer. Um, and that will have to come the, if the existing Harbor Commission continues to be dysfunctional and if there is a public sense that this is not acceptable, um, I, I think it could happen. It could also happen by petition. It could be done on an initiative. I know they've, they, they, they've tried to do some seminars and bring in some facilitators, and it doesn't seem to have worked, has it? No. 
And again, I, I think there are particular individuals involved who are making this worse, but I think it is a fundamentally a bad government structure. And okay. It needs to be start over again. Let's talk about the things that are happening in local government now, uh, whether it's a board of supervisors or it's a district. What's your opinion of, of the people that run for office should... They're not only running for the district or they're running for the county. Should they be running just for that district? Um, there seems to be a push, a legal push, um, in some areas that if a city mm-hmm. or a county doesn't comply with this, that they'll be sued. What's well, your opinion on that? So the county is already uh, districts, and the city of Half Moon Bay is moving to districts. I actually think from a representation of populations, that's an appropriate way to do it. And San Mateo County is one of the last ones to move to that. Um, and it, it's more complicated if you're talking to something like the Harbor District. So what is the geography? What are the districts when you're talking about the entire county? And do people from uh, Foster City should have a say in in, uh, in Apple Bay? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but in other places, I, I actually think properly designed districts that the district lines are drawn by um, an independent process, whether it's an independent commission or it's just not people drawing the lines to protect their seats, I think is a much better way to do it. Well, let's let's talk about another kind of innovative guy. I haven't had the opportunity to interview them, and I think he's going to be on my radar if I can ever get to talk to him. And that's John Draper. Now, John Draper um, wants to divide the state into six, I think. At one point it yeah. was uh, three or two. Yeah, it's three now on the initiative that's on yeah. the ballot. Now, I'm not asking you to agree with John, but I want to dissect what you think about politics and local government. And we'll, we'll start with local, and then we'll, we'll go to the state and the federal. Um, well, first of all, I think just to be direct, Will Draper's initiative to split the state in three is a horrible idea. It's, it, it, it won't happen, and if it does happen, passed by the voters, which it won't, um, it'll never be approved by beyond that. It's just a waste of time and money. It's pretty, politically entertaining, but useless. Um, and, as, and as it relates to more local activity, I think the, the closer you get to where people can touch and feel who their representative is and they're in touch with their constituency and feel like they're responsive to actually delivering something as opposed to just bloviating on talk radio, or the cable network news, worse yet, Twitter, I think the better better off we are. So to me, getting closer to citizens and having more engagement with the public in the in their, their governing process is a much better answer. Well, you know, I had the fortunate opportunity to interview the mayor of Burlingame. And the mayor of Burlingame was uh, in the foreign diplomat. And uh, his, um, and I encourage you to listen to it, his, his belief was that you get more done with local politics than you do with the state and the county. Now, I don't want to quote Jackie Spear, but I've talked to a few friends of hers and says there is still a big gridlock back uh, back in the federal government, with uh, whether it's the Senate or the Congress and stuff like that. So they seem to have lost touch with the people. Yeah. No, listen, I, I've written a lot and am a big proponent of something that my co-author, Laura Tyson, who was President Clinton's chair of Council of Economic Advisors and I call progressive federalism, which is uh, taking advantage of the governing structure that's in the Constitution, which says that powers not explicitly held at the federal level are delegated to the states or to the people. And the more we move things closer, as I said, to the people, to states from the federal government, from states down to counties and cities, um, and direct engagement, I think the better off we are. You know, when you're uh, a city council member in a small town, you see people in the supermarket and they tell you what they think. If you're not fixing the potholes or, you know, you have a problem with traffic, they're going to know about it. Um, and so I think we've had the, this, the Governor Brown calls it subsidiarity. It's move it closer to the people unless you have a reason to take it center to a higher level, keep it local. And I think that's that's totally appropriate. Well, you, we, we, we've sensed this, and I'm going to have an opportunity to interview Senator Weiner next week. Okay, Senator Weiner had a bill, uh, 827, which kind of went down to defeat. And again, I spoke to most of the mayors, and they were all opposed to Senator Weiner's bill because it appears that the state government wants to get involved and tell you how to build housing or how much housing. When I've interviewed different cities, each city is a little different. 
One city may have, like Foster City, 20% affordable housing. Uh, Belmont might do it project by project. Um, so what's your opinion of the state trying to dictate uh, to the cities that you sure need they, to build so yeah, much well, housing? I, I, I'm not sure dictate is the way I would describe what the right approach would be, but they, uh, there are objectives of housing production that um, are, are uh, appropriate public goals that move beyond the boundaries of individual cities, and they ought to be held accountable for um, delivering against those. I'm not saying you know you need to specify exactly what type of housing, but you need to have objectives and goals for how much you produce. Um, but they also need to have the financial incentive to do that. So it's not right for the state to say, I'm going to require you, City X, to build 10,000 more houses. If you build 10,000 more houses, then it loses the police and schools, cost you $2 million more a year than you get on tax revenue for building those houses. Well, Lenny, let's go back. I think we came up with a solution here, or a partial solution, if, if, if the state feels that we need to build more housing, accountability, I agree with it, why can't we get that property? The property that we just talked about that's in the state and counties. I think that would be a crucial housing for maybe workforce housing, affordable sure. housing. Um, so maybe we, we need to hammer it through. But I, it just baffles me that, that it all goes by the wayside. They don't want to part with this property or they don't want to talk about it. You know, there, there are some people doing some of those things as we talk about smaller examples. But um, if you look at in the Bay Area... Um, if you talk to Stanford University, one of the wealthiest universities in the country, their single biggest problem is housing right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Stanford has for a long time had a portion of their housing be faculty housing that the university owns the land and you get the appreciation on the home during the time you're there, but you don't own the land. They're 99 year leases. And they did that because it was in their interest to build housing for their faculty. Well, that's staff. what they did when they sold the shopping center, yeah, too. Exactly. So, with that good example, Stanford, uh, Kenyatta College, yep. College of San Mateo did that. Now, I know when I used those buzzwords a couple of years when I ran for elected office, somebody thought that was not the proper thing, was one of the things. And I think the campus housing aspect can facilitate that. Yeah. Um, you're pretty knowledgeable on the economics in the state of California. And one of the confusing things that we're trying to find out how many units does the state build a year? Now, somebody was telling me 60,000 that they're building, that we need to build 180,000. So when I throw that question out at me, at you, I don't think we have an answer on how many units that we need. We know the growth of the population. There's no argument there. We know the growth of employment. Do we really yeah. have a, a good handle on this housing I think thing? Uh, I think we have a better handle than we did. Um, housing's obviously moved up the priority list of local and statewide officials from not being something they cared about to the top of the list now. Um, and, you know, the, the basic math, the McKinsey Global Institute did a piece of work for California Forward on this topic, and basically we're building 100,000 fewer homes per year in the state than we need to keep up with the pace of job growth. And so just as a starting point, a million more homes in the next decade above trend is the rough number that would get us back somewhere into balance with job growth. That still doesn't, that says, so all that's going to do is make sure that houses prices don't go up more than they already are. It's not going to lower them. But, you know, we're, it's not a small problem. This is we have to build a lot more homes this is, or assume we're not going to have any job growth. Do you, think, uh, you know, do you think it's density housing is the answer? That's a big piece of it. Um, but it also, there, part of that analysis um, that was done in the major metropolitan areas, which is where most of the job growth is, there is enough land already zoned for housing that you don't have to have a large incursion intrusion on um, vacant land that's outside the urban corridor. So it's part, and that's not even talking about redoing parking lots or um, land that is underutilized like malls. So there, it's a little bit more dense, 
It's not like what the answer is you have to be Manhattan in the Bay Area. But one more story around BART stations and transit hubs would make a big difference. Well, you know, I had a dream a long time ago when we take a look at the El Camino. Mm-hmm. If you take a look at the El Camino, that would have been a perfect start for a monorail system that drops off the Caltrain, that drops off to electric bikes, autonomous cars too. But it goes back to what we just said. We don't have a plan. Yeah. I mean, El Camino, is, the El Camino Real is just about the only plausible other traffic corridor on the peninsula. And then you're not going to solve that by putting a million more cars on that mm-hmm. road. But having denser housing around it and new modes of transportation is a great answer. Mm-hmm. And it, But, you know, that decision's made by 15 different cities from San Jose to San Francisco. How can how can um, local cities and I, I challenge the city of Foster City, uh, Sam Hindi, and also challenge Rick Bonilla. Uh, we live in, in we're right off ninety two. I'm in Foster City. We have an issue for a lot of our the people, the residents that live in Foster City. They can't get to the train yeah. quick enough uh, in the high demand. So I said, what about a commuter lane at certain hours? How can cities? do a better job partnership. It seems that they all go to the wonderful conferences down in Monterey and Carmel and that they talk and they collaborate, but we don't collaborate. How can local governments, and I think local governments, in, in my opinion, two cities or three cities, can make a difference? Yeah. Well, I don't think there's anything preventing it. So this isn't like there's some barrier that says you can't do that. It's more carving out the time some of its relationships, and San Mateo County actually has uh, a, a good set of relationships between the individuals in different parts of the city and the county. It's a, it's a well-run county, um, but it's going to take new ways of doing things. It's not just let's try to do this a little bit better. Um, you know, if I had my way, some of the things that would, would encourage that would be, um, and the regional transit three is an example of that give me some money that encourages people to work together to come up with plans that solve the problems on a regional basis not just within the barriers of your city um, mtc and abag <clears throat> together and if they had um, the the bonding and funding potential that mtc has could incent a lot of those things um, the state in the next iteration of what wiener's bill was or other things that encourage regional integrated housing and transit planning and gives the cities that work together financial incentives for doing it and penalties if they don't, I think all that would help. Okay, now you're, you're an uh, investor. Sorry, let me give you one more example. Okay. The uh, first time ever, the nine-county Bay Area has approved the parcel tax for wetlands restoration, and it's going to be done on a regional basis. And that's a good example of something that if the entire Bay Area said, this is important, we're going to have sea level rise, we need to have, that's an extremely cost-efficient way to at least mitigate some of that. And we're going to spread the cost over the whole Bay Area, and we're going to make sure that it's done in an integrated way. Well, I know in Foster City we just passed Measure P, yep. and uh, we, we saw that light. We had about an 86% of the people that supported that, which was wonderful. I, I think that's good. I know... Um, I had an opportunity, and uh, one of the supervisors, Dave Pine, is really mm-hmm. instrumental in clean energy yeah, and all that other type of stuff. I encourage you to listen to it. Yeah, Dave's a friend of mine. He's great. And it, it, it was innovative. I want to know what we really can do because the environment is an issue here. And I want to bring it back that it's been my observation that the environmental impact reports that we use to approve a project, whether it's a commercial, whether it's retail, whether housing is outdated, um, and why are we still why are why are we still doing it? And a good example, a couple of the ratios of the criteria in the environmental impact is police and fire and safety. Okay, traffic studies, occupancy in in uh, apartment dwellings or single families. I know from my personal experience of knocking on quite a few doors in the last twenty years that the occupancy rate, because of the high demands of rent or mortgages, is very intense. And if in a most cities, your general operating expense, meaning police and fire, are at least 50% of your, your thing, aren't we missing out on, on safety issues on local cities 
for the preservation of continuing the economy the way it is? So I, I, uh, I'm not close enough to know the specifics of exactly what the environmental um, planning and uh, zoning and kind of permitting process is. I will say there, uh, I, I am sure you're right that they are outdated and not reflective of the current environment. I also think that having environmental standards and environmental protection is an extraordinarily important part of what we need to do and part of what, <coughs> excuse me, Californians and particularly places, people who live on places like where we do on the coast are really important to them. That's a different thing than saying the California Environmental Quality Act is exactly up to, spit, to tune with today's environment. It's not. Um, it's used more often than not for purposes that have nothing to do with environmental issues to slow down or prohibit <coughs> development, and that's not appropriate. <coughs> Excuse me. So having a, a refreshed and honest take on all of the regulatory architecture that encourages or discourages the kind of investment that we want is a good idea, and it can be done if there were willingness to have an apolitical look at it. So as an example, the amount of time it takes to build a home here is... And, uh, several multiples of what it is to take to build a home in most other parts of the country. That's one of the reasons why houses cost so much. And that does not result in better environmental outcomes. It just means it takes longer and costs more to build a home. And so if we said one of the objectives is no degradation of environmental quality, no lower labor standards, but cut the time to go from I've, we've agreed to it's built in half, that would make a huge difference. And be beneficial to particularly the the average person or or people who are looking for affordable housing. No, I think that's that's a good idea. You know, one of the major issues right now with the boom in the economy, we have a shortage of labor. We have an immense shortage of labor, yeah. um, and that's going to continue to expand as this this economy continues to be robust. And I'm assuming it it's going to unless something curtails in a tariff that drops us off the cliff here. Right. Um, so, how do, and this is, uh, is housing and is health insurance a right? So, um, we definitely have a shortage of worker, skilled workers who can build the kind of housing production that we need. That's true now, let alone if we um, meet the needs of what our job growth is. And that was true before we had the North Bay fires, which is an enormous strain on um, the amount of, of production that we need and the amount of workers that we need. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> part of that is that we need to, to um, encourage and train people to enter the trades and um, ensure that people who are willing and able to do that work and are excited about it are going into that work. Well, I, I, I had a wonderful opportunity. Uh, Jeff Bleich didn't win for lieutenant governor, but I had a, a good interview. I'd like you to listen to it, and I kind of cornered him on that, and also Eleni Chikakis, because I really think we need to bring trade schools back. I, I, th I, I think it's overwhelming uh, that we have to understand not all young people need to go to college, but they do need to get a career. Well, they need to have an, a set of skills beyond high school that enable them to be competitive in today's workforce and the workforce of the future. And one of those important ones are um, community college degrees and skilled trades. And, um, you know, we're getting better at that, but we're, you know, we had a decade where between 2000 and 2010 where the economy was in a terrible shape. And 2018, um, we now have uh, a massive need to make up some of that. And um, I mean, it's a wonderful thing to think that we have 2% unemployment in San Mateo County. I'm really happy about that. But um, we need to have people to do the work that needs to get done. Um, the other part of that is there is, we can't think of the Bay Area in isolation. You know, we are very closely connected to parts of the Central Valley, both towards Sacramento and towards Fresno. And thinking about new ways to connect so that the answer to that isn't everybody who kind of the only way they can afford a house is to live in Turlock and commute 90 miles to Silicon Valley. Well, this kind of goes back to the transportation thing all over again, Lenny. And I really think that even though we're improving the roads, we don't have a plan. We need to somehow have a plan to get point A to point B. 
on whether it's 50 miles, 90 miles. I think the peninsula has a 65-mile radius corridor on this 101. It's heavily trafficked from 7 a.m. in the morning till probably 9 o'clock at night. Now, if you think of it, it's all north-south traffic. Not very much east-west, but a little bit. So it still seems that we need to be innovative enough to get people out of their cars. Yep. And we still haven't done that. Yep. Any ideas on that? Well, um, I think part of this is technology-driven. So, again, I am a big believer that the new... If you the technology for driver-assisted or let alone autonomous vehicles is progressing extraordinarily rapidly, um, and if you just think of that not as moving from a driver in a car, but from a a, a vehicle that can move one or more people in spaces efficiently without fixed rail or fixed opportunities, that really creates new opportunities to utilize that infrastructure, and so. Um, you know, imagine it, it's a, um, a, a vehicle that can put four people in it very comfortably and move wherever you need to go. You know, I, I, I did a little research on you, and, and, you know, I know some people quote you on something. I don't want to take it out of a quote, but they said some, some, a few people asked you, why aren't you running for political office? Now, I think the paraphrase that I got was that one, it wasn't the right time, and two, it was not the right political environment, and then three, the way it is structured is not adaptable in your mind, in my interpretation, in your mind for change. So how can we improve that? Yeah, I, um, so to be clear, I, I, uh, I have a great admiration for people who are in public service and trying to be great public servants. And um, I, at the local level, at the state level, and some federal officials. Um, and so people who are really good at that and really committed to serving citizens I think is fantastic. And um, I'm really encouraged by the number of really high caliber people who will never think about running for office that have put their name in the hat in this, this cycle. Some of that obviously driven by anti-Trump sentiment, but also from there's a generation of people who never thought politics or public service is important who figured out that it is important. So let me just state unequivocally that I, I admire and think it's really important that that happens. Um, but I also think that we need to alter what the opportunity for impact for those people are and how they spend their time. I, mean, I have many friends in elected office who are if they could do what they really wanted to do, which is to get in and solve tough problems, they'd be thrilled. But they spend half their time sitting on a phone cold calling people and raising money to run for office. And that's just a total waste of time and corrupts the system. And so we need to have new ways to finance elections. And we need to, and if we did that, we would encourage a whole nother group of people to run who aren't just great at raising money. Um, or either they're self-funding or they're, they're good with dealing with interest groups so they are good at cold calling people and ask them to write a check. So I think that's one of the things that would make a big difference. What do you think of what they did in San Francisco with this rank order voting? Do you, do you, do you think it makes any sense? I do. I think that um, one of the necessary political reforms across the country at every level from local elections to county elections to statewide elections is altering the primary process. Um, I think citizen-based redistricting and open primaries are a good step in that process. I think properly designed uh, ranked choice voting or some combination of those are really good. I mean, it, it helps um, It helps open up the, the primary process to encouraging candidates who appeal to the broadest section of the population and it also encourages if it's if it's designed properly campaigns like it was in San Francisco that are not about tearing down your opponent but about trying to create coalitions and collaborations that actually makes it easier to govern afterwards because you're not then you won because you were the first person who got 50% but you destroyed your opponent and they hate you that's interesting. That's very. That's very. That's uh, that's a very uh, uh, brilliant statement. There, is there anybody in particular that, that growing up and over the years that, that was in politics or sports or something that you admired? 
that, that, that really set you to, because to, obviously you had some high goals for yourself, uh, and you've reached a lot of those goals. So was there anybody in your life that influenced you? No, I mean, there were a lot of people who influenced me. I, I'm not sure they were kind of sports figures or national political figures. They're more people who you had touch and feel with more as you were growing up. My parents, uh, my grandfather, teachers, um, people I worked with. Uh, and were you a dairy farmer or was your family a, in dairy farm? Yeah, no, my, my grandfather started dairy farm by buying it um, out of bankruptcy in the Great Depression. And my grandfather ran it, and then my brother ran it. I worked on it until I went to college. Uh, yeah, we sent dairy farm in Turlock. Well, on behalf of Podcast by the Bay, Lenny, I want to thank you for the opportunity to interview you, and we look forward to, to following you. And also, we'd like an opportunity to come down here and listen to some of your podcasts or some of your interviews, too. Thanks again, Lenny, thank from you. Podcast by the Bay. Appreciate it. Thank you. I keep on falling. Out of love with you. Sometimes I love you, sometimes you make me blue. Sometimes I feel good, and at times I feel you. That was Susan James in the Thrill Train performing Falling. I hope you guys enjoyed that. That was from back in the day. You're not going to hear that on any other show except for here at Podcast by the Bay. That was live. That was probably around the time we actually did play at the Half Moon Bay Brewing Company, as I had mentioned when I was uh, telling my story about uh, meeting with uh, Lenny back th- back in the day. Um, but, yeah, that's Susan James in the Thrill Train. That was myself on guitar and sax uh we had dave stewart also on guitar we had uh phil fazio on drums and danny J on the bass and of course the miss susan james singing falling 
All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that. And I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the show. And you guys can listen to any of all of our podcasts anytime, 24 hours a day for free. They're all on the iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Pocket Casters, you know, um, a- any of your sites that you listen to the podcast, they're there. So go ahead and check them out 24 hours a day. They're available for everyone. And we really appreciate you guys and for staying tuned. All right. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Podcast by the Bay. Podcast by the Bay is brought to you by Highway Soul Productions. Check us out at HighwaySoul.com and in conjunction with Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.Liberty-RealtyInvestments.com Remember to subscribe and download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. You can contact Podcast by the Bay by their email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. All material is property and copyrighted by Podcast by the Bay, but does not necessarily reflect the views of Podcast by the Bay. For sponsorship opportunities, please contact us by email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. Stay tuned.